Well, one of, thanks choir, by the way, that was wonderful. Uh, one of the more enjoyable parts of this Christmas season, not this one in particular, but all Christmas seasons, I think, is just watching the joy and anticipation and enthusiasm of kids. Uh, they just like love all of it, but in particular, just the enthusiasm and anticipation that they get just anticipating opening presents. Yeah, see? Um, like, they just can't contain it, and sometimes they don't have words for it, so they just start vibrating, right? Um, when I was growing up, our tradition was that we opened presents after we went to church on Christmas Eve. And while it took three to five minutes to get home from church, uh, my dad always stretched it out to at least 30. So that we would drive to every nook and cranny of town, places that we would never drive during the year. And our, you know, small hometown, about two miles wide, or two miles long, one mile wide. But we saw all of it on Christmas Eve so that we could look at all the Christmas lights. And while I think my dad really did enjoy looking at the lights, and I know we did too, I think he just loved to build the anticipation. Sometimes it didn't work super well, but mostly it did. My father-in-law has a different plan. Uh, <laughs> he blesses his grandkids, all of them, each year with a gift that he devotes an entire day to wrapping. So... There's always this anticipation, how many layers of wrapping paper will this one gift have? I don't think there's ever been less than 12. Our passage today from Isaiah 61 is this invitation for us to see, to anticipate the coming of our King and Savior that the ultimate and truest gift at Christmas, and to experience the wonderful and overwhelming joy, the unspeakable joy, to experience, to understand how awesome it is that the God of the universe sees us, knows our names, and desires relationship with us, that he'll move heaven and earth to be with us and to set us free. To the point that when we recognize it, as much as we might try to express it with the words we know, we, like little kids anticipating opening really cool gifts at Christmas, might have almost nothing to say except that it moves us. We just start bouncing around and overflowing and bubbling up as we think about how great and awesome our God is. Our passage, Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 3, it's on page 641 in the Pew Bibles, and the words will be on the screen. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our, of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and the garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Let's pray. O oh, great God and Father, as we reflect on these words from your word today, we pray that you would give us insight, wisdom, discernment, but even more than that, we pray that you would help us experience the truth of these, that we would experience unspeakable joy in our relationship with you. For you are our good shepherd, our redeemer, our great and mighty king, and you alone are the one we need. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we reflect on this passage today, just a couple points that kind of jump out at me. Uh, the first uh, is just an editorial note for me mostly. Um, there can be only one, he will. The, so the first question for scholars is, who is Isaiah talking about in this passage? And many modern scholars assume that this is a passage where Isaiah is talking about his own calling, that the Spirit has come upon him to proclaim this good news. But some of the scholars that I was reading through uh, made it clear that the way Isaiah handles this passage and this calling are very different than the ways he talks about his calling throughout the rest of his prophetic book. And as you can see, this this reference on the screen, Luke 4, 16 through 21. Luke records for us that as Jesus was beginning his ministry, after he had been baptized, he returned to Nazareth, his hometown. Well, the town he grew up in. And he entered the synagogue, and he took this scroll from Isaiah 61, and he read it to the people. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Luke records that Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. As we read through and reflect on and study the details that are embedded in this glorious passage, these three verses, it becomes abundantly clear that Isaiah is not talking about himself, but that he is preparing us for this anticipated king who will come and rescue us, our Redeemer and Savior, God himself, Jesus Christ. 
There is only one through all history who can accomplish the things that are described for us in this passage. But he will do it. Our kids uh, at Kaleidoscope Kids on Wednesday nights for over the last year have been, uh, one of the songs that they've been using is a song by Ellie Holcomb called He Will that pulls its lyrics from this passage in Isaiah 61. And they sing and worship celebrating who God is, who Jesus is, and what he does for us. That all the things described here are things that Jesus has and will do as we trust him to do that in our lives. There can be only one, and this passage is truly only about Jesus. And as we read this list of things that Jesus is going to do, we discover that Jesus is jubilee for everyone. The things that are described in this passage evoke memories for God's ancient people of the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, God set aside an extra beautiful Sabbath year where everything was made right again. Everything was fixed and corrected. If you had been in debt and you needed to basically sell yourself as a slave to somebody in order to cover your debt, in the year of Jubilee, you were set free. All the slaves were free. If you had sold part of your property, in the year of Jubilee, you returned to the property that belonged to your family. Prisoners were set free. Slaves were set free. The, the whole experience of the year of Jubilee was this picture of the fulfillment of salvation that would one day come through the Messiah. And as we read it, we're struck by what Jesus can do. He has come to proclaim good news to the poor. In our broken and sinful world, lots of our lives are often characterized, defined, and shaped by scarcity, by want by feeling fear that we might not have enough. We feel poor in all kinds of ways. Some of us are poor by definitions that we would all accept, but each of us is poor in some aspect. We feel like there's something that we need that we don't have now. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted uh, the word bind up there is, is really like to, to bandage our broken hearts. To bring healing and protection for that wound. To proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. And certainly there are people that, again, that's absolutely true of, but in each of us, in the the prison of sin, we feel stuck and held captive by things. There are strongholds in our lives. We fight spiritual battles, and sometimes it feels overwhelming and dark. But Jesus has come to give us freedom 
and release from all the dark oppression. He has come to proclaim the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, that he has come to make all things right. And the day of vengeance of our God, which is not revenge so much. That's not really an emotion and a motivation that God himself has, but he is just. And the the day of vengeance is the day that we will experience the fullness of God's justice played out. That if we have chosen a life of sin, a life apart from God, a life for ourselves, we will experience judgment and we will be put away. But ultimately, what the prophet and what Jesus wants us to know, certainly the warning that that could happen to us, that we could be on the wrong side of God's justice if we don't recognize what he wants us to hear now. That our sin does condemn us. It does separate us from the one true God who, has, who loves us so much that he came to rescue us and lay his own life on the line for us. But it's also this reassuring picture that it was, as we see evil celebrated in our world, and injustice celebrated, and growing in strength sometimes, that the God of the universe has not forgotten us, not forgotten his people, and he will restore all things, and his justice will be absolute. And for those of us who are in his family, we will be, graciously released from the oppression of evil and injustice. And we will get to live forever in the glorious presence of the God who makes all things right. It says that Jesus has come to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion. That whether we're grieving and repenting over our sin or we're experiencing sorrow in the brokenness of life on earth, Jesus is coming. He has come. And as he's with us, we experience comfort and peace. As, as it's described in Philippians, peace that transcends understanding that our relationship with God leads to peace in a way that guards and protects our hearts. It transforms us. So whether we feel captive, trapped in an addiction that we, we don't have the strength to break out of, we feel stuck in a dark place, overwhelmed by injustice, broken in mourning over our own sin. Jesus is the one. The king we anticipate. The savior who is promised. Who has come, is here now, and will return to complete all his promises. Jesus is a jubilee for everyone. 
the experience of being set free from the darkness in our lives is overwhelming. This is unspeakable joy. But Isaiah is compelled by the Spirit to describe it even further. That Jesus reverses the curse of sin. It's something we sing about in Joy to the World. That Jesus, as he ushers in his kingdom, even now we see evidence of it in our world and in our own lives. And we don't want to get confused. He promised us that until he returns, we will have trouble in this world. And he's described for us that it will get worse and worse and darker and darker, but his kingdom is here and it is growing. He ushered it in, and his spirit is alive in us and at work in the world. And his kingdom reverses the curse of sin, and it's described in three specific ways here. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. So ashes are a symbol of mourning, grief, of repentance. An admission of the brokenness, an acknowledgement of the brokenness in us and around us. And Jesus, our anticipated King, our great God and Savior, has come to take the ashes of our repentance and our mourning and our grief and replace them with a crown of beauty. That as we acknowledge our sin and the brokenness of our lives and we lay that before the Lord and say, you are my only hope. I need you. He takes the brokenness of our lives and reworks it transforms us to bring us from children of wrath to children of God and grant us as heirs of the kingdom a crown of beauty. Then Isaiah describes that in Jesus' great reversal, he gives us in the oil of joy instead of mourning. That where our grief is expressed and our sorrow is expressed, that he anoints us with an oil of joy that says we are marked by a different name now. We belong to the king who saves us. We have a new identity and a promised certain future. that our home with him in heaven will be a place where there are no more tears, no more death, no more sickness, no more crying. But we will experience unspeakable joy. And then Isaiah says that Jesus in this great reversal will give us a garment of praise instead of a spirit 
of despair. That in the brokenness of this world, in the brokenness of our lives, in our, our struggles to achieve, our struggles to be known and recognized, our struggles against sin, that it can often feel dark and overwhelming and despairing. It's not difficult for any of us on any given day, in any given moment, to say, how am I going to get through this? Where's my hope in this? But Jesus wants us to know very clearly that he is our hope. That he's enough for us. That as our good shepherd, in him we want for nothing. We have all that we need in him. And as we lay our cares and concerns, as we lay our sin and regret, our guilt and shame at his feet, at the foot of the cross, he clothes us with himself, with his own righteousness. And our character, our atmosphere, the ambiance, is defined no longer by darkness and despair, but by praise. Because when the anticipated king comes and sets the captive free and brings light in the darkness, what response is there except to rejoice? Our passage closes with this description. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. In the brokenness of the sin in our lives and the brokenness of the world around us, it is easy for us to feel or even be broken, bending reeds, blowing in the wind feeling weak and just tossed by all the things happening around us. But Jesus, in his great reversal of the curse of sin, as our anticipated king who comes to rescue and redeem us, he transforms us from these bending broken weeds that bend at the will and movement of the wind and establishes us as oaks of righteousness. As, he, as His Spirit lives in us and gives us strength that does not belong to us. It's not our own. As He endows us with righteousness, His innocence that we did not earn or display, but it is now ours because... He was that for us. A planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. When people see the transformation in us, they see the evidence of the God who makes all things new. At the end of the chapter, 
so the voice changes a few times through this chapter, but these last two verses, verses 10 and 11, are the song of the redeemed people of God. As they've received this anticipated king and savior, as they've experienced the wonder of what he can do, this is what they shout in praise. In their unspeakable joy, they try to find words for it. And with what they can't describe in words, they anticipate it like a little kid waiting to open gifts. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. It's bubbling over for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. I no longer even look like myself, but I look like him. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. I'm not a very good gardener. I don't even try. But I know how things work. Now, I really love it when I get to see it just happen in nature. That's why I don't garden. <laughs> the seeds fall, and life sprouts up. The seed dies to what it was before, and it becomes something new that produces even more seeds. It is the picture and cycle of life. And that is what God does in us and for us. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up from before all nations. Let it be true in me, in us. Let us come And adore him, this anticipated king who loves us so much that he came to be with us. So that as he was here historically, the God of the universe laid down his life, sacrificed himself for us. That we might be clothed with his righteousness, restored in our relationship with God set free from the oppression in the darkness all around us and inside us and made new. That as people recognize what's happening in us, as we recognize it ourselves, we would just overflow with praise and joy to the great God who did this in us, for us, and among us, and that our lives and the miracle that God does in us would cause people in all nations to praise Him, for He alone can do it. Let's pray. Father God, we come before You this morning 
And for many of us, the anticipation of Christmas has become familiar. We know what to expect. We know what plans we have to make. We know how many gifts we still have to buy before that celebration. But Lord, as we come to you, help us see more clearly who you are and what you've done, what you promise, and what you accomplish. Lord, as we feel the oppression of the world around us, as we feel the guilt of our own sin, as we sometimes feel trapped by it, pray that you'd set us free. As we grieve and mourn our experience here, our losses here, our struggles here, the reality here, We pray that you would comfort us and replace our mourning with joy. Lord, in you and in you alone can we find someone who can take the ashes of what we've known and form it into a glorious crown that reflects your splendor and glory. But it's what you've offered us. And you alone are who we need. So do that in us, for us, through us, again, this year, again today. That we would know the joy, the unspeakable joy of Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen.